Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. This is part two of my interview with Professor Stephen D. Brookfield. He's going to talk about his social justice influences, in particular his connections with Miles Horton and the Highlander Center. And he's going to push us to think about ways we can be more critically reflective as teachers and learners. And now's a good time to uh, switch to some of those influence, influences that you just mentioned, um, Paulo Freire and uh, Miles Horton and the Highlander Center and the citizenship schools uh, in, your, um, in your book on uh, community engagement with Stephen Preskill, in, um, in particular I'm thinking of, uh, which I've used in an internship class that I teach here. Uh, for we have a religion and social justice major, so um, that has that book has great. been really useful in a number of ways. Oh, good! Uh, wow, that's great. I'm glad it's been helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just your own autobiographical piece, but also plugging into the history and the openness and prioritizing of um, anti-racist pedagogy um, that that's grounded in the real work of the Highlander Center and. Yeah. And others. Um, and so I want to ask, uh, first, I found it really, really useful to me, uh, your work, and I think this was your dissertation work, because I was not familiar <laughs> with Edward C. Lindemann, uh, mm -hmm. who was a pioneer in adult education. Um, right. And he talks about uh, some of what you've just been mentioning is you know which is education is life and it's grounded in life and then you go from this kind of life-centered learning uh deeper into issues of social justice and democracy and um so if i could get you to talk about uh this, this is probably you know going way back but i don't think a lot of people know about lindemann um and then, you know, connections with Dewey and then, you know, sort of a genealogy here. Um, uh, yeah. The sort of, you know, self-directed, cooperative education, the use of popular education. Um, if you could uh, talk about Lindemann with us. Yes, absolutely. I actually um, edited an anthology of his work called Learning Democracy. Um, which is out of print now. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose I should, if I retire, I should get that <laughs> back into print or self-publish it or something. But yeah. he was a, a big influence I came across um, early on in, in my career. And I, I really didn't know much about him when I was in England. But when I came to the States and I started familiarizing myself more with uh, American traditions of, of adult education, um, I, I read a book of his called The Meaning of Adult Education, which is an incredibly brief conversational book. But those themes that you talked about, the centrality of experience, the fact that learning is really a, a constant process of remaking our experience and reinterpreting our experience and opening up us up to new experiences. I mean, that, that very much appealed to, to my way of thinking and uh, and then I was intrigued to find that you know um, he, he knew Lindemann well, I think when Lindemann uh, sorry Lindemann knew Horton when Miles was at Union Theological 
um, seminary, uh, which was just across the street from where I worked, and, yeah. and certainly was there were lots of connections between him and, and Dewey, mm -hmm. and so um, I just liked the way that Lindemann always saw adult education as a social enterprise, and it was always linked to the, in, uh, the extension of democracy, broadly defined. He wrote a, a really great book called The Democratic Way of Life mm -hmm. with um, a guy called T.V. Smith, and they identified several democratic disciplines, the dis democratic disciplines that citizens needed to learn in order to make democracy function properly. And of course, this is um, way out of print as well, but I still use those. I still talk about democracy as a partially functioning ideal, mm -hmm. and I got that from from Lindemann. And so now I would say, well, how do you how do you make democracy happen? Well, there's two ways you can make it happen, badly or not at all. And I got that from a colleague of mine, Lucia Polowski, who applied that to anti-racist work. And I just think it's a great phrase. You, you, you know, I, I, anyway, so I got that from Lindemann. And, and, um, and I'd say that probably Miles Horton is the biggest yeah. single influence on me. Um, uh, but in adult education, um, in the more sort of professional publishing side of it, because Miles, by definition, didn't really want much to do with universities or scholarship. That's right. Um, pub, you know, the playing that game. Yeah. But Lindemann was of that ilk and mm -hmm. always saw education as a, a, a community project, and, and you couldn't separate education in Dewey terms as well, mm -hmm. out of the enactment of democracy. And so that's why I called the book that I did on him "Learning Democracy." Yeah. Um, so yeah, he, he's he's pretty much a forgotten figure now, um, other than a few within the field of adult education. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, um, uh, hopefully he'll be. Um, you know, I think a lot of these things are cyclical, and so maybe there will be at some point a, a rediscovering of his work. Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to mention him because I I was not familiar with him. My my knowledge kind of stops at Dewey, <laughs> and I'm uh, maybe typical of uh, of other uh, faculty who aren't in you know education departments but are uh, interested in educational theory and and praxis. Um, if you could talk uh, a little bit more about Miles Horton um, and you know some of the specifics of why. He's, uh, you know, uh, you're the single biggest influence on you. Gosh. Um, well, um, I should preface this by saying mm -hmm. after he'd been a, a kind of hero of mine, I actually met him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met him when my daughter, who was then about two, mm -hmm. was with me. And he came into the office at Teachers College and the first thing he did was make a beeline for my daughter and pick her up <laughs> and kind of walk around with her. So then my love affair was sealed um, with <laughs> yeah. Miles because that, that just was right. a very emotional moment. Yeah. Um, but, but generally, um, the, 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 he was, to me, very helpful 
in and the Highlander practices as much as I could learn about because by definition the Highlander really didn't publish because it was doing stuff it needed other people mm -hmm. to write about it and a few people did and um, the emphasis on the primary primacy of experience again which I was so appreciative in, in Lindemann's work mm -hmm. and the fact that Highlander really is about learning from experience but in a um, a, a collaboratively structured and critical way. Yeah. So it's not just swapping experiences, it's saying collaboratively, collaboratively um, what can I learn from your experience dealing with this, you know, um, civil rights problem or this labor union problem or this land ownership problem? Mm -hmm. How does your experience inform mine and how could my experience inform yours? And so the asking of questions about experience, the constant focus on what can we learn yeah. from each other's experience, just seems to me at the heart of what good leadership is, whether it's in a social justice context or in a, uh, you know, a, a more formally organized or, or hierarchical organizational context. Yeah. So that collaborative and critical analysis of experience is, is what I loved. And then I love the fact that he also had a pragmatist, prag, pragmatists in the best sense of that word, side to him. So he would say, well, if I go somewhere and people only want to hear me lecture, then I'll give them a, a, you know, a, a bit of a lecture and then I'll move out into a more dialogic approach. So it wasn't the um, rigidity, I think, of, of, I've been at many conferences where people are so um, committed to group process mm -hmm. and having a democratic exchange that you go into a session because, and I've, you know, I've gone because I want to hear what this person thinks. I value their mm -hmm. analysis. And the first thing they do is put me in a group. And I never actually get to hear really what that person thinks. And I feel at some level fundamentally cheated because I really haven't got anything of you here. So, so, you know, give me something of yourself first and then move into a group. So it's the same logic I was talking about earlier. You can't start with your own self-indulgent preference. Well, I want to work in a strictly Frarian way um, <laughs> yeah. because that ignores the context within which you find yourself, where people have been socialized and habituated to this top-down PowerPoint um, mm -hmm. kind of mode. So, And I like the fact that Miles acknowledge that and you know American pragmatism is the experimental pursuit of beautiful consequences so hmm. and Cornell West I think really does that very nicely today he says yes we're all engaged in broadly defined I guess social justice work but there's no one way to it we constantly got to refine and experiment and, and he doesn't use the language of critical reflection particularly, but I think that's what he's talking about. Constantly examine the assumptions that we make that such and such an approach will work and open ourselves up to different ways of, of, of doing things and, and acknowledging that we might have missed something and making some kind of compromises and building connections or bridges between where people are and, and where you want to take them. So I really like that about Miles as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so he seemed to speak to my soul as a practitioner and as someone who 
who doesn't have the luxury of, of just saying, well, I know what you need to know for your own good, and I'm going to tell you. And I, I feel that I've met a lot of people on the left who have a, a, a bit of that indulgence and will say, well, you have missed so much in white supremacy, um, patriarchy, and heteronormativity, and so on. I am going to now open your hmm. blinders and show you the way. And yeah. um, I just think procedurally, methodologically, sometimes yeah. that's a mistake. Unless people are eager and ready for it and hungry, then that's fine. But but mostly people aren't, and, and particularly the community communities and organizations I'm with, people aren't at that point. So so I yeah. think Miles would say to me, you know, well, you know, find out a bit more about where they are, what they their thinking is, what matters to them. Mm -hmm. And I've seen Ira do this, Ira Shaw, very well, as well as Miles. Um, and then use that as your conduit to, um, you know, show them you respect that and you're striving to understand it, and then mm -hmm. build connections yeah and that's how the I'm system. sorry yeah, Tina that, I'm getting a great. very preacherly voice <laughs> it's great I can tell uh, it's great um, yeah that's how the citizenship school started you know the Highlanders yeah. had um, a structured United Nations Declaration of Human Rights conference and then Esau Jenkins stood up and said that's not what we want to do that's not our concern <laughs> We need right. people to learn how to read so they can pass the test to vote. So they can pass the registration, voter registration yeah. test, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I want to go back to the Shore Frere book because, uh, and Ira Shore, I think we talked about this in, in the podcast with him, um, especially for for junior scholars. But when um, it's, it's the whole concept of deviance credits. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you... You have deviance credits when you publish, serve on committees, are a good institutional citizen, you know, those kinds of things. But when you, yeah. as, a, as a teacher, K-12, through or a professor in higher education, get involved in social justice, um, either, you know, in the enclosure of the classroom or, you know, what's going on outside, you know, Black Lives Matter, DACA, whatever, you know, there's so much stuff in this, in these current times in particular, you know, or, or um, you know, trying to undo um, transphobia or whatever, uh, you know, and your classroom becomes um, that kind of negotiated space with the concerns of the students uh, and, you know, your own activism, you know, how... How do you, uh, what do you say to people who uh, want to teach social justice um, and intersectional approaches and that kind of thing as a way to, I mean, because there's so many things to think of that you've just mentioned, you know, how we can reinscribe power in the classroom. Um, you know, we decide that the chairs are in a circle or a semicircle and, you know, I mean, there are just so many power issues. Um, so, yeah. you know, how do we do it so that we're always, you know, open, um, taking those risks, but also open to um, critique? Well, I guess sort of um, almost from an ontological viewpoint, um, I, I, I'd say, well, maybe it's not ontology. Maybe, well, maybe it's a mixture of ontology and, and 
epistemology and practical methodology. I would say, number one, um, you're going to fail. <laughs> so don't go in with a template of yeah. success because if you do, you're on a hiding to nothing emotionally and psychically. And also, you know, organizationally, um, <clears throat> you will always feel constrained and you, you'll get a lot of resistance from students and unsympathetic colleagues. So, you know, it's the nature of the beast mm -hmm. is that um, it is frustrating and difficult work at which you will feel you are constantly failing. And that sounds incredibly pessimistic, but once you sort of understand that, I find for myself, paradoxically, it really helps because, of course, I'm going to screw up. Yeah. Um, this is so complex, contradictory a project mm -hmm. that it's inevitable <laughs> you're going to screw up. So, you know, don't let that get assume too big a, a, um, a, a place in your thinking. You know, it's mm -hmm. an epistemological error to expect success. Um, because your knowledge about what good work is has to be reframed to the knowledge that good work is trying and failing. Yeah. And so that, that's one big thing. And then mm -hmm. politically, um, I'm always urging junior faculty, frame everything that you can um, in the language of the mission. Mm -hmm. And most mission statements or value statements or yeah. strategic plans are by definition malleable. We talk in broad terms, broad strokes, broad concepts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my university's mission is to develop morally responsible leaders who work for the common good. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's a beautiful mission statement, and it asks us yeah. to help them to do that by getting them to think wisely. I mean, to act wisely and think critically and work skillfully. Well, these are fantastic terms yeah. that uh, allow me to frame so much of what I'm doing if I'm trying to propose something different using that language. So I, I, I know Audrey Lord says don't use the master's tools hmm. to mm -hmm. dismantle the master's house, but I do that yeah. um, hmm. because I can't think of anything else, actually. So, So that would be one thing, and even to the extent of putting in syllabus statements, um, whether it would be engineering, art history, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, real estate management, or social justice peace studies, putting that mission statement right in the center of the syllabus and reminding students that this is what yeah. we're here for. So we have to think through how as a a class and in this course are we going to realize our missions statement so that gives you a veneer of a veneer of, of legitimacy that's harder to pierce mm -hmm. than if you just come in and say you know um, we need to do social justice work um, and then I think you have to um, begin with some autobiographical disclosure and I know this is a very complex issue because I have the advantage of being white and male and older or old. So so I have all these identity markers and when I self-disclose my struggles with this work, I get props for it. And I mm -hmm. you know, people say, 
I love the fact that you can own up to your mistakes in public and look how you're still learning. Mm. Whereas my women colleagues, in particular junior women colleagues and colleagues of color, make those same declarations. Yeah. And um, it, it, you often get the response from students, well, uh-oh, here's affirmative action, foisting mm. someone who doesn't know what they're doing on us again. And um, so they get penalized because of their because of identity politics for things that I get applauded for yeah so having said all that made that long disclaimer though I do feel that the use of appropriate narrative disclosure is a great way to draw people in so instead of coming in and, and saying well um, I need to teach you about racial identity development and you need to get to this point that Janet Helms or someone else identifies as being racially cognizant and I'm going to get you there. Instead you come in and say, you know, um, my life is a constant struggle to understand ways in which unconsciously I'm reproducing power structures that help other people, that, that um, not help, but to the opposite, that actually hurt other people and I've been socialized into ways of thinking and, and looking at the world and interpreting my experience and events around me that are very comfortable for me and I here's what I missed and here's how I missed it yesterday and last yeah. week. So I yeah, think exactly. for junior faculty moving into that, the more that you can do that, the better. And then thirdly, I think the the, the um, the direct testimony of people who are being hurt by the system um, mm. is very, very powerful. So, um, um, you know, this, uh, this essentially is critical race theories, yeah. emphasis on counter storytelling, that you privilege the narratives of those who are being exploited. Mm -hmm. So there is so much material out there. Online, if you can't get people actually in the classroom because by definition people who've been screwed over by institutions won't want to go into institutions and talk about how they've been screwed over yeah. um, in their lives so but you know um, so if you're lucky to have people to come in that is the best but if you're not there is some amazing first-hand narrative testimony mm -hmm. uh, all through um, film um, and all the other things that um, a more imaginative approach, which is not always textually based, w would involve. So, um, yeah. so, so, so those would be, I think, the three kind of guidelines, uh, mm -hmm. orienting, strategic ways of approaching that situation. I think would probably just come up to me right now. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. Um, well, if we could shift from there towards something you, you mentioned, which was um, imagination and uh, more aesthetically um, centered uh, practices, practices in the classroom. Uh, could you talk about your own evolution toward uh, more embodied learning and, you know, the use of uh, theater and, and, other, and other things? Yeah, um, so I am a very strong INTJ on the Myers-Briggs 
inventory. I'm very, very strong, especially on the thinking bit uh-huh. of it. Hmm. So I basically come to decisions by thinking them through. And of course, I have universalized my experience um, and assumed that the rest of the world doesn't. You know, I was really struck by uh, Jürgen Habermas's idea, um, the German critical theorist, that you you really can only be said to be entering adulthood when you stop universalizing your experience. And so, by that definition, um, you know, I'm probably still not quite into adulthood yet. <laughs> I'll probably never get there. But but around teaching, I was definitely universing my experience. I used a lot of words. I love words. I take pride in using them. I love the English language. I love writing. Um, so I think I just implicitly automatically assumed that everybody else, that was the best way to communicate to them. If I could just be as clear and succinct as possible in the way I gave directions or provided written feedback, then that would you know, that would increase students' learning and move them forward. And it was only when I started um, really researching my own practice seriously, which was about, I guess, maybe about 1990, so I would have been working for mm-hmm. 20 years, that I, I, and I started doing things like using an instrument called a critical incident questionnaire, which you can, mm-hmm. you, you, anyone can download from my homepage if you put that mm-hmm. link to my homepage, you just go to resources and they'll see it there. Yeah. Um, so that gave me a, a, you know, a, a sense of what was going on in the classroom and all its complexity from week to week. And I realized yeah. that people were responding to incredibly different things. And so my mm-hmm. carefully reasoned explanations, you know, some people really liked, but, but the way I used my body or when I, you know, did a humorous aside, those sorts of things. Or when I just used an autobiographical example, I had mm-hmm. no clue about the power of autobiography until I started using that instrument. Mm-hmm. So, and so over the years, I've realized that actually, and I think this connects to my own learning about politics, that you don't move people by reason or argument. You move people by a powerful narrative and or an emotional experience, and then you support that with reason and argument, but what draws people into major behavioral change or Mm -hmm. considering something that's really difficult and challenging, you know, they're not drawn in by a carefully reasoned speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're drawn in by an experience that they've had or um, an, an image or a powerful piece of music or um, a, a, a movie that they watch, you know, it tends to be those more aesthetic experiences that are the profound triggers mm-hmm. to change, which, which, which then you bring reason into that new trajectory. But you don't start with the mm-hmm. reason. So I teach a course on leadership narratives as one of the courses here. And this is a really hard thing for students to get their head around. And my students are all principals, deans, you know, mm. uh, heads of divisions in companies. And, oh, wow. and they always begin a new initiative by setting out, here's the reasons why we need to do this, here's what our competitors are doing, and here's why we need to get to where our com- more successful competitors are. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, a guy called Stephen Denning who comes from a, a business background, and it may seem weird for a community-based person to be drawing on business literature, but hey, I'm a pragmatist. <laughs> I'll steal a good idea from anywhere. Yeah. He has some really good stuff on the strategic use of narrative as the initial way that you build interest and excitement, and then you work back to bring in reason. And I think that this is really the power of the Trump campaign has been the use of narratives of alarm. And, he's, you know, you've seen this through yeah. politics repeatedly, but it really reached its apogee in, is that the right word, apogee, zenith? Mm -hmm. What I mean, mean to yeah. say is it's, you know, full extent. Whereas uh, the Clinton campaign was producing reasoned argument. And, um, and I think, I don't think Trump did this deliberately. It's just who he is, the way he made everything about him, which so many people found so objectionable and horrific, in a sense, was a very strategic, smart thing to do mm -hmm. and, and has a parallel in, parallel in education. So, hmm. um, so I think the whole focus on imagination is that you need to use something that is often nonverbal, that's based in image mm -hmm. or some kind of emotional reaction. And that's what will um, open people up to a new way of thinking. And I'd known this from reading Herbert Marcuse, yeah. you know, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, he wrote a book on the aesthetics of liberation, and, and um, he was always talking about the liberatory power of mm -hmm. art. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd never really enacted it until I started looking at those critical incident questionnaires from my own students, which convinced me, hey, I'm really missing something. Yeah. I really need to get into this a lot more. So that, that's really where it comes from, Tina, from my own student testimony, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so that gets back again to the power issue where, you know, in a classroom where there's, uh, you know, mutual accountability and for the learning process, you know, the professor can also be transformed um, by the experiences and knowledges of the students. So that oh God, I hope so. Dialogical, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I've found if I don't create spaces for that intentionally, I can shut it down, um, and I lose when I shut it down. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I get con the content demons get hold of my head or, you know, right. whatever, um, or institutional boundaries become uh, too oppressive. I allow them to become too oppressive, then, you know, then I make bad choices <laughs> and yeah. become, you know, uh, mainstream. <laughs> so, yeah. So what, um, what are you, you've talked about, you know, the current times and the current um, administration that we're enduring. Uh, what, what do you most want to subvert in um, the institution and structures of higher education? And I, I'm thinking, you know, oh. as higher education becomes more corporate, um, as, uh, as some institutions want to model uh, leadership in ways that, um, you know, again, fits into the more corporate model. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of the opposite of, of 
Horton, Miles Horton in the Highlander Center and Ferrari and Gramsci and, you know, the rest. So uh, what do you most want to subvert? And what do you, well, um, you know, what, what's your thinking of that? Um, and I'm, I'm thinking a little uh, bit about, you know, that little subfield of anarchy pedagogy, but uh, not um, entirely. But, you know, just from a social justice perspective, a Ferrayan yeah. perspective, what, you know, what are you most trying to subvert or, I guess, in a utopic vision, what would you want to subvert? Um, well... Yeah, I wrote a book called The Power of Critical Theory yeah. a while ago, and I also wrote another book called Radicalizing Learning mm -hmm. with John Holst. And, and the Radicalizing Learning book was trying to understand what education looks like uh, informed by socialist values. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we were trying to frame socialism in a way that did not mean... Um, you know, the traditional Leninist models of state ownership of the means of production, although I think there is a strong case for state ownership of public utilities and so on. But we were thinking more of values of fairness and equity, using language that people are much more familiar with. And so if you say, what would I want to subvert? Well, I guess I'd like to subvert the capitalist ethic that runs through the way higher education is organized. But, you know, that's such a grand scheme that um, you won't get that from within higher ed. You'll get that from external um, political parties. You, you need a well-funded political party to take on that kind of political work. Um, so, um, and, and I realize, you know, when I think about the dominant ideologies that infuse our institutions, you know, white supremacy is a big one I'm focused on now, but patriarchy is a, a very in, enduring one that's just just as pervasive mm -hmm. and harmful. You know, I, I, I try not to think of how am I going to overturn white supremacy and patriarchy because it's just such a, mm -hmm. a grand theoretical, a practical project that you can become, you know, you can fall prey to this radical pessimism of just being completely hopeless. So I often frame it in the way that Steve Preskill, who, who mm -hmm. co-wrote the discussion books with me and the Learning as a Way of Leading book with me, um, we often say, you know, treating someone, treating a student as a human being seems to be a revolutionary project, a revolutionary reality. Just showing someone that you're actually listening to what they're saying and considering it and exercising curiosity about it, and which is not the same as agreeing with it, because students say a lot of things that I disagree with, um, but just showing them, you're, you're, you're taking the time to find out about their world seems to be a revolutionary act. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that's the kind of thing that I focus on a lot is, yes, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm exercising my power in a way that I ho think, I hope, is authoritative and supportive to their learning. Of course, they may completely disagree with that. Um, and I'm trying to do that by demonstrating that I take them seriously, and I really want to find out what they have to say and how they're experiencing something and encourage disagreement. 
So that's why I'll use the criticalness in a questionnaire. That's why I use all these discussion protocols. That's why I'll use today's meet as a constant social, anonymous um, social media back channel in okay. class. I'm constantly trying to demonstrate that I take them seriously and, um, and you know, pay them that mark of respect. I mean, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot says the most respect, the way that people experience respect is by being attended to and listened to carefully. And we know this from all the, the mattering literature. So, you know, just doing that yeah. simple thing, um, which you can do every day. So right now I'm grading papers. Hmm. And uh, before, you know, we started this podcast, in fact, I was so into grading one I almost forgot this was happening. <laughs> so I got up about five minutes before and thought, hang on, where am I supposed to be? So so I would, um, so I'll disagree with them and I'll give them feedback on how I think their work can improve. But I hope that I'm doing this based on an effort to show them that I really understand what they're arguing and what they're saying. Before I just say, well, here's how I think you could do better. Yeah. So, you know, I just feel simple changes in the way, the way we run meetings, for example. Uh -huh. If we could just use a chalk talk occasionally or a circle of voices as a, a way of opening a meeting yeah. or, or do the criticalness and questionnaire in meetings. I had one student tell me how hmm. she did this in a meeting a couple of weeks ago in her organization and it really worked fantastically well. I mean, I just, just love that. So it's yeah. not a very oh. grand project. But it makes sense in terms of my daily life. And then the other big projects, mm -hmm. I really like Miles's distinction between education and organizing. Yeah. And I, I have that split way of thinking. So when I'm an or working in a more organizing mode, I'll often say, well, the powers that are arranged against us aren't going to wait for us to have full consultations and discussions. They're forcing us to act more quickly than they do to co-opt, to, to um, anticipate and outmaneuver them. So that's not an educational thing. That's an organizational thing. And that's quite appropriate and necessary in one sphere of my life. But, but then when I'm thinking about as an educator, as Miles said, you can't do that. You have to let the process play itself out yeah. the way it plays itself out. And, and you constantly, as you mentioned, Tina, have all these mm -hmm constraints and the content demons in your head coming in and but you've got to stay true to the process so it it helps mm -hmm. me to think of fundamental social change as being a political movement that involves one part of our energy and world and then the educational work as something with a fundamentally different dynamic and miles was really helpful yeah. to me in, in clarifying that difference yeah and we're working in institutions that are um, more concerned with disruptive students and yeah. creating disruptive student policies. And I, I think, you know, what I learned from the Highlander Center in Prairie is you want to create spaces for that productive yeah. disruption yeah. uh, for, for students um, becoming change agents in their own right. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's funny, I was at a faculty forum last week, you know, our, our provost was there, and it was a forum on why we should teach about race in, in an overwhelmingly white institution. 
And one of the things I propose is that the form that evaluates us, which is a, a, the IDEA form that a lot of colleges adopt, mm -hmm. I said we need to force IDEA, at least for our university, to insert an item which, which assesses the degree when students are evaluating teachers, they have to comment on the degree to which I was productively troubled in this classroom. Mm. Or you could, also, you could change that and say the degree to which I was productively disrupted or this, this class productively disrupted my ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment, you get penalized, as a lot of my colleagues tell me, particularly junior colleagues and women colleagues, they say it's easier for you, Stephen. Uh, you know, for me, I run real penalties and greater yeah. risks than you. You're old, yeah. you can retire, you got, mm. in a sense, nothing to lose. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that productive disrupt is disruption. I mean, that's real. That's a, actually the liberal, I think, idea of a university, going right back to Card Cardinal Newman and, mm. and his book mm. on the idea of a university. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, it used to be a mainstream value in, in, huh. in higher ed. That's interesting. Well, at least when I was growing up, and now I'm sounding like an old geezer <laughs> back in my day. Well, uh, we're, we're getting at time, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and, and to encourage us to be disruptive uh, professors and teachers in the world. Um, is there anything you want to leave us with today? Oh, gosh, no. Well, I just appreciate you giving me the chance to ramble on. And, uh, and, and I think, I hope that, that you've got from this that, you know, in The Skillful Teacher, I use the metaphor of teaching as informed muddling through. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how I think of my life. I'm, I'm muddling through trying to understand all these dynamics. And I hope I'm doing it in an informed way. But, you know, I could... I could wake up t tomorrow morning or, or you know, uh, and realize that I've just missed something very fundamental, and that's the nature of, of the beast. So, yeah. um, and that's what I think, for me, keeps it so interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is such complex work yeah. with so many complex worlds of experience, different worlds experiential worlds in the same classroom as, as William Perry talked about the different worlds mm -hmm. in the same classroom. You know, that's to think that there is a template um, is crazy, but there is an informed analysis of experience. So you go in with some broad guidelines, or at least I do, mm -hmm. and then I realize I'm going to have to calibrate and contextualize these and listen very carefully and find out really where people are. And then I got to make a lot of on-the-fly decisions yeah. about what to do next in class, who to respond to, whether to pick up a question or not. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, yeah. there's really, it, it's a very artistically creative experience, I think, being an, an attentive teacher. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think um, you're going to help a lot of people. Uh, think more deeply about their teaching practice practices and about the the good work uh, that they're doing and how to do it better. Well, thanks, and I apologize for pontificating. Uh, I tend to get off on a on a rant, you know, and it's it's not a good. But when I can't see anyone, I know, I know, it's harder for me to stop. <laughs>
uh, you know, on a telephone call. Oh, it is. It is. It, it, but it's uh, good to have rants. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, people who read um, uh, Arthur's books, you don't, you know, sometimes the ranting doesn't come out as, as strongly. And we, we need the rants. They're disruptive. <laughs> so. I mean, yeah, and the, it's where the passion comes out. Sometimes it's hard in measured scholarly language or books for practitioners to really insert that passion mm -hmm. in there. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But thank you for all your, your, your books and all the, the work you've done, um, you know, to give us all these good things to think about uh, to help us be more reflective um, and more concerned about social justice and our, our work in the classroom. Well, thanks, Tina, and please feel free to direct anyone to my website. It's all open access, so there's no need for anyone to ask me permission. Okay. You don't need to get in contact with me. If you find something on there, okay. just steal it and okay. adapt it to your own setting Yeah, oh, with I'm my big, blessing. I have been a big, many multi-time uh, thief of your website, of the resource. Great. You've uh, been many, listening many to my interview with Professor CNA, Stephen D. Brookfield. Uh, and, and other, the music other theme so at the beginning is composed by Aviva. And when I wake up tomorrow, I'll be in a righteous rage. This Brookfield's band, the 99ers. And there's a link to the 99ers site website www.tinapippen.org. I want to thank my team, audio engineer China Wilson, assistant audio engineer Abigail Cox, social media coordinator Kirsten Schulze, and technical consultant Emily Gwynn. Our next podcast is with Chris Kraft, an organizer and activist, so stay tuned.